Ancient Studies On Air, the podcast that brings you real, recent research on ancient Mesoamerica. I'm your host, Catherine Knuckles-Wild. Annabelle Rodriguez is an artist, curator, and educator from Puerto Rico and a PhD candidate at Rutgers University. Her dissertation is titled Curating Sunanchunich, and it is based on fieldwork and archival research related to the preservation of culture and nature at the Sunanchunich Archaeological Reserve in Belize, Central America. Annabelle has curated exhibitions for alternative art spaces, cultural organizations, educational institutions, and government agencies in Philadelphia and New York City. She's the founder of an independent research platform called the Curatorial Lab, and today she'll be telling us about her dissertation. Anabel, thank you so much for taking the time to sit and chat with me about your project. I'm super excited about uh, the, the way that this project has gone, the topic of it, and you know, I've already told you how excited I am to hear more about it. Um, but for our listeners who are hearing about this project for the first time, um, would you mind taking a few minutes and explaining a bit about what your project is and sort of the general summary of it? Thank you, Catherine, for this invitation. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here, and I am happy to talk to you about my project. Um, the project is titled Curating Shunantunich. That is the short title that I've sort of um, decided upon. And uh, originally, it was uh, an opportunity for me to explore the practice of uh, archaeological conservation at Shunantunich. Um, I was invited. Uh, to join a field school called the Shunantunich Archaeology and Conservation Project, uh, or SHAC for short. And um, in the process of joining that project and learning more about archaeological field methods and looking around at the work that I saw being performed and carried out there in order to preserve and consolidate and in some cases modify and reconstruct um, the monuments that uh, occupy the site core and the peripheral areas at Shunantunich, I realized that um, my original idea was too limited because I really, I was really more interested in the mechanics of preservation mm -hmm. of conservation more than anything. But once I found myself on the ground, I think um, in a very kind of organic and logical way, I became a lot more enmeshed in the social relations that I saw unfolding around me and that I was a part of, of course. And so I became a lot more interested in the work as it was being carried out by, uh, for the most part, uh, by men from the adjacent villages to the archaeological reserve. And as it turned out, um, quite a few of those men are indigenous. Um, they are either Maya Mestizo or they are Yucatec um, Maya, or they are Creole, you know, and mm -hmm. um, I realized that they were the curators and stewards of the site, that the work that I thought was mechanical and that was in a way related to archaeology is in fact all those things, but that the people that are really doing the curation of the site and turning it into what people that visit the site experience when they get there are really this uh, indigenous curators as I came to um, see them and think about them and their work. Yeah, and I think that's such a fantastic insight that so many times goes unnoticed by so many of us. Um, and this is something that, that I'd love to, to hear you talk a little bit about, because this is something that we don't talk about a lot um, on the podcast and just generally is that when people visit these sites, um, they're not seeing something that was just carried or just, you know, like unburied from the dirt, right? There's a, there's a right. whole process that goes into reconstructing. So could you tell us a little bit more about that, that process? So that I'm so happy that you stated that because that is exactly, that was the root of my curiosity. I keep thinking to myself, how is it possible that we come to these places, even us as, as students of these things, you know, whether archeologists or art historians or other social scientists, you know, it's really easy to buy into the idea that what you see is what, what was there. Um, but what I found absolutely fascinating is precisely how 
how much that is untrue, how so much of what we're experiencing is in fact a, a modern, not, I don't want to say reconstruction because in many cases it's not, but at least a modern consolidation of what was found. And in many cases, we know that what we find is pretty ruined, you know, pretty, you know, like <laughs> it's not uncommon to find a mound in the forest and it's just a pile of stones. And slowly but surely, people that are trained to do this make sense of this and put it back together in a way that becomes intelligible and, you know, in a way that becomes an understandable monument. And even more than that, um, it's, it's an, there's an interactive dimension to it at Shenantonich because people can still climb these monuments. There's a lot, and, and not just at Shenantonich, other places, but there are sites that visitors experience where they're not allowed to climb anymore. And so that's, there's a different experience, you know, I, I think I play, I'm thinking of places like Chichen Itza, for example, um, right. which like so many other sites, you know, one could climb up and down, you know, the monuments, but over the years, it was determined that that was not appropriate anymore. Well, you know, places like Shenantonich, people can still really interact with these monuments. So they also have to be prepared for the public. And um, there's a group of archaeologists in Belize that have been engaged in this sort of heritage work for a long time. And um, two of them, uh, the Chases, Arlen and Diane Chase, they've coined the phrase tourist proofing, which is used mm -hmm. in Belize to talk about the preparation of a site or a monument for tourist, you know, for touristic uh, uh, engagement. And it's a process. It's, it's definitely a complex and convoluted process that involves a lot of different decisions, um, you know, from the fact that sometimes you find these artificial platforms that are built so that tourists can arrive and sort of gain access to a beautiful view to a, you know an impressive view or something as simple as a banister like you know you're sticking mm -hmm. a banister on the side of a pyramid to climb it <laughs> so it's pretty fascinating how it transforms these you know these are these artifacts you know these in some cases massive you know artifacts but still you know mm -hmm. this sort of man-made um really fascinating things that by the way that are not we call them artifacts because we see them as objects in order to think about them as objects but there's so much more than that you know um mm -hmm. a maya pyramid is not even a pyramid it was it was it's a model you know it's a a way to represent a sacred mountain and you know it's a way to convey values and, and political ideologies and it's it's the whole thing is has been a let's just say that it's been a very eye-opening process for me absolutely yeah and i'd love to talk a little bit about the the unique position that you have and had when you were coming onto this project um because you, like me, are primarily an art historian, right? And so how how did your training in visual arts um, and, uh, and, and that very different disciplinary approach influence the way that you approach this project as in a different way that I imagine that an archaeologist would have approached it? So, yeah, that, that's a, another very on point um, question that is really kind of like a set of questions. Um, so I will try to approach it, it part by part. So you're right. Um, my background is on uh, definitely a bit of an outlier. Um, I think I was invited to join this project because I was in a graduate program taking heritage uh, courses, heritage preservation courses. And I had an assignment that I, I was really intrigued by. Um, it was a law in heritage seminar and I had to um, I had to look at a bilateral treatise between the US and another country um, that you know that in terms of protecting uh, heritage from illicit trafficking mm -hmm. and um, my undergraduate preparation was both in art in, and in art history. So I had a, a BA in art history and a B actually in history of art and architecture mm -hmm. and a BA in visual arts from Brown 
um, in consortium with RISD. So I had a pretty solid training in both a lot of Western art history, to be frank, because that was really what the department at Brown was uh, was um, focusing on at the time. Mm -hmm. And I also had a lot of training in, in 2D and 3D art making. And um, I sense that they both fed something in me that made me very interested in museums and in collections. And um, I went straight from an undergraduate degree to an education program in a museum where my role was basically to interpret collections and to design programming around all kinds of different forms of art, not just painting or sculpture, but I mean, it was but anything that came to the museum, you know, whether it was a French impressionist or whether it was um, something contemporary or colonial, you know, I had to really learn to think about art in and art, you know, from different perspectives mm -hmm. pretty quickly. And um, that made me very interested in the curatorial process. Um, I was lucky that I worked in a museum where I was very welcome in all aspects of the museum operations. So I learned and picked up a lot of skills that had to do with exhibition uh, installations and thinking about space. And I think that, you know, kind of awoke in me the, the curatorial mindset that eventually led me to this project. Um, so I'm not a typical um, graduate student because I started this PhD later in my career as a way to kind of solidify and sort of consolidate things that I had been thinking about for a while. And I wanted to do something with curation um, because I had been curating exhibitions for quite some time. And it's not that I became tired of the formulaic approach to setting up an exhibition, but it's that I knew that the idea of exhibitions as these finite events had sort of run its scores with me. Mm -hmm. And so I began to think about out, out, like what happens outside? Like what is outside? What, how are things curated um, in the world, like in the real world, not just in a gallery or in a museum? And um, my own intellectual curiosity brought me back to grad school twice. First, to study anthropology, specifically visual anthropology at Temple. Mm -hmm. And I went to Bali and I went to Japan and I also went to Java. And when I went to Java, I spent some time at Borobudur and inside Borobudur, like I stayed inside Borobudur. Oh, wow. Uh, and I think it was the first time that I was in a UNESCO property like you know in a place that's been branded through UNESCO and mm -hmm. at the time I didn't at the time I didn't pay that much attention to that but that's something that's going to come into play later on in this conversation because of course the UNESCO brand is pretty powerful in, in Mesoamerica you know mm -hmm. and that uh, we were talking about that before the interview started so put a pin on that so to speak yes um, so so at Borbudur is, I, I, I think that was where the seed was planted when I started to think about how this monument, which in fact is made of stone, is pyramidal in the sense that it is a mandala and, you know, it's a Buddhist mandala that's been manifested in stone and it's also an initiatic, uh, uh, it's, you know, it's an initiation for Buddhist practitioners when you get to Borbudur. At the, at the base of the monument, you see these carvings that represent stories from the life of the Buddha. But then as you get to the top, you enter the realm of nirvana, of enlightenment, mm. where everything becomes a lot more abstracted. And the fact is that a visitor that goes to Borbudur today will not necessarily ever know that that monument had completely fallen apart because of tectonic movement. Mm. Um, the stones that made up uh, Borbudur had not been set with mortar. So uh, I went and I stayed in the park so that I could actually visit the museums and spend time in the grounds and really kind of get a sense for the environment. But the typical visitor will not get to even see the historical set of photographs that are tucked away in like the most, like the the deepest recess in the museum at Borbudur, 
there's these photographs that show historic photographs from the 19th century showing all the stones on the ground mm. and how they basically had to put them back together like a puzzle to right. reconstruct Borbador. And that is what we see today. And now, you know, it's it's a reconstructed monument that makes sense. I think if I remember correctly, there were some stones that were put back out of place, but but it wasn't something that terrible you know like mm-hmm. that the integrity of the monument you know is still is still you know it's an understandable monument. it's a legible monument you know right and um i i later on found the work of a man named uh ken taylor ken taylor is a heritage specialist that has worked at borbador and he he was the one you know the the, the eureka moment for me his work taught me how to think about these sites as more than just open air museums as as spaces that can in fact be curated um, and that are often curated but without any kind of uh, either a comprehensive view or or a holistic view like the fact is that a lot of things happen to turn a place like Shunantonich into an archaeological reserve but that doesn't mean that those actions were necessarily concerted or thought about as one vision, as one kind of curatorial vision, not at all. Mm-hmm. All kinds of people adding adding their little grain or their big grain, you know, to uh-huh. it. <laughs> um, so the invitation came, I just realized that I left that hanging. The invitation to work at Chinantinich came because of an assignment that had me reach out to talk, you know, reach out to the person that runs this archaeological and conservation project. Mm-hmm. And um, his his name is Jaime Awe, and he is the director and founder of the Belize Valley Archaeological Reconnaissance Project, and that's a very well known and long standing archaeological field school in Belize that has been going on for over two decades, almost three. Yeah. Um, so I ended up there. It was the right moment for me. You know, he knew that I was interested in conservation he knew that I was interested in tourism Uh, he knew a little bit about my work um, thinking about those things elsewhere in places like Indonesia but um and I think he also understood my own personal background um, because I'm from Puerto Rico I'm being from the Caribbean I'm being specifically from Puerto Rico I'm very sensitive to the impact of tourism Mm -hmm. and, and culture and different forms of tourism that are heritage mediated or culture mediated or you know in the case of Belize and Puerto Rico adventure mediated you know because a lot of people go to these places mm-hmm. because they really feel like it's you know like a secret Indiana Jones you know right uh-huh. <laughs> it's true it's true yep yeah. it's true <laughs> so I I think that you know you have this this really unique approach to the the question of the project, right? Um, this this idea of curation and and looking at the site as a curation. Um, and so I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about what the process was like for doing your research. What what steps were involved? How did you carry it out? So at first, I was there as another grad student in the field school, except that there were grad students that were there because they were there to carry out their master's projects but I was there to to I was an outlier you know I was really Mm -hmm. there to kind of work in whatever was needed and I was also there to learn and pay attention and think about what if anything I could come up with as far as the dissertation project and as I said originally I had a pretty formal mind I wanted to learn techniques conservation techniques materials you know, I was really interested in 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 logistics and mechanics, um, but the fact is that I think the project really became or it came alive when Jaime Awe um, had the foresight to introduce me to his main and to Belize's main uh, heritage conservator, and uh, he's a man named Jorge Can, and he is Jucatec uh, Maya. And um, we, you know, Jaime said, you should, you should follow this guy around and talk to him. And uh, Jaime and Jorge and I really just got along really, like we just understood something about each other immediately. And 
even though at first, the first couple of years when I was just there with the field school, I wasn't really able to spend that much time with him learning from him directly. The fact is that he gave me enough to start thinking about things in a way that made a lot more sense. I mean, if it wasn't for Jorge, I wouldn't have a project. And I see him as, I see Jorge Can as very much my, my, he's there. I mean, with everything I think about and write about, even if it has nothing to do with something that he's been doing at Trinantonich directly, he's there like sitting on my shoulder because mm -hmm. he helped me understand everything that I needed to be able to get to articulating a research proposal, including, mm -hmm. by the way, including questions that I may have had at the beginning, you know, thanks to my collaboration with Jorge Khan, I was able to refine those questions and to make them a lot more, a lot more, a lot more real, a lot more, mm -hmm. uh, a lot more relevant to the work as it happens on the ground. And I mean, even when it was time for me to start talking to people one on one, I made it was it was because we identified who we, who I who I should talk to. It wasn't because I went around haphazardly trying to figure out who I should talk to on the ground. No, mm -hmm. like understanding the research that I was doing on the side. You know, when it, whether I was at the Getty or whether I was here in Philadelphia at the Penn Museum looking at material that dealt with Shenantonich and with conservation at Shenantonich, everything that I was looking at in terms of archival research only made sense when we got to the field and I began to talk to people about what was what they were really doing on the ground, not necessarily what was being put in the reports or in the memos or in the articles. <laughs> right. Which is another thing, which is another, you know, big thing that I've gotten out of this that there's a big disconnect be between, you know, academic publications and this kind of work. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So what what is the process like then for these uh, these these curators, as you call them, these conservators? So, again, you know, um, let me let me say something about the term curation, because as mm -hmm. you probably have seen over the past 10, 15 years, the concept of curatorial work has truly and completely exploded. Um, you know, when I was looking at what curators did, and it wasn't even that long ago, but it was it was it was a few it was a few years back now. Um, a curator was really someone that was doing a lot of research and interpretation and uh, designing things as they should be presented to the public, be it in a publication or be it in a, an exhibition hall, be it a gallery or museum or a sculpture park or whatever. But the fact is that um, popular culture, culture has done something really fascinating with that term, with curation, because now something that I suspected all along um has really become the norm which is the concept that a curator is is that everyone is really a curator you know that that mm. it, we make decisions and we make we, we decide how we work on on shaping the world around us in certain ways that can be thought about as being curatorial um it can be something as simple as the way you you dress, or that's not necessarily as simple for many people. You know, it could be mm -hmm. something very complicated, or it can be you know the way that you stage your home or your workplace or um, an experience for your friends. Um, and so you know, we end up with things like you know, oh yeah, I've curated a playlist for you or a menu, you know, mm -hmm. which. I have to say, I secretly rejoiced when that started happening because <laughs> it democratized curation. It made it, mm -hmm. so, it, it, it's the way I imagined it should be. Mm -hmm. But I also know that it rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. <laughs> so, uh <-huh. laughs> I remember hearing it from some of them, you know. And so it, it, there was this really funny moment where there was a little bit of like a culture war about what curation was and what curators could be or couldn't be. And I personally just thought it was, you know, a little bit uh, or a lot elitist. Mm -hmm. And I, I, just, I remember, you know, clearly being one of the first in my peer group to say, yeah, but the thing is, everybody can be a curator if they decide that that's how they want to think about things. 
you mm -hmm. know, because it, it's sort of, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's an attitude because that's hokey, but the fact is that thinking curatorially is in itself a way to think about the world around you. I mean, I, I think about things curatorially, not just when I'm planning an exhibition anymore, but even when I'm planning something like a trip or even when I'm thinking about how I'm going to design my dissertation. I mean, that was something that took a lot of planning and I wanted to execute it in a way that felt true to my own praxis as a curator. Right. Um, I'm not giving you, I, I don't know that if, I, if that answers your question, um, but it definitely, um, I show, I hope it shows you that um, I think about the people that I worked with or that I, um, also listen to tell me about their work at Shenantonich as curators because it's not because they're trained to be curators but because their actions their the fact that they put together a wall through masonry that is meant to look authentic because mm -hmm. it has to because it cannot just be the same kind of masonry that you would apply if you were doing a wall at home you right. know to, to develop the eye to be able to to repoint a limestone block and put it back in that wall or to just even make sense of a pile of rocks. I cannot tell you how many times, Catherine, I stood in Antony just watching them, watching men putting together these things and thinking, I if you gave me this mound to interpret, I wouldn't know where to begin. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know and 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 so I would call Jorge and I was like okay I see that you're starting this here like this but where did you get that this is how it should be and then he would walk me all the way down and say right here look watch this is where this particular alignment begins and I, I would just be like amazing not because it's so incredible but because that's a that's an expertise in and of itself that not one of us in the field school, not one of us students had, you know, mm. no, it didn't matter whether we were, you know, the undergrads, masters or PhDs. I mean, these, and not only that, because they're masons, they're already excavators. They're already mm. ex like such amazing excavators. Right. Like you don't just end up working at a dig unless you already know how to dig because <laughs> most of us that showed up there with our trowels, sure, we may have had a little bit of experience and in some cases more than a little bit of experience. But the fact is that there wasn't a single person in the field school that did not know in their heart of hearts that the only reason why we were finishing things on time and why we were finding so much and why it was so amazing was because of the local people that were there to make it all happen for us mm -hmm. it was that's it it was yeah. these men that, the glue that kept it all together was these men you know and and there was no other way there was no way that just us students would have hoisted all the stones moved all that dust and sand out of the way you know it wouldn't have happened there's no way right yeah so I call them curators because they work yeah they are they're doing a lot more than just they're doing a lot more than just putting these things back together. They really are the ones that are making the experience kind of come together for everybody else. And that is very much part of what curators do too. Right. And, and I imagine it, it requires so much uh, specialized skill and, and I'm not sure what sort of training they have, but, um, but it, it I can absolutely see that there, there is a skill required to be able to see things the way that you describe Jorge as being able to see things um, and then to be able to execute it in a way that that is effective. So Jorge, Jorge is the intellectual child of a very brilliant conservator who's also an architect named Rudy Larios mm -hmm. and Rudy is uh, there's no doubt in my mind that I mean when I visited Copan last January, I quite literally had someone look me in the face and say, Rudy Larios is a hero. And I knew that he meant that I knew why he was saying that. It's because Rudy Larios is a Guatemalan conservator and, and he was just re basically received the highest honor that his country could give him, um, the Order of the Quetzal. Mm -hmm. um, he is 
a senior conservator who directed Tikal, who did conservation at Tikal, who worked at Copan for years and years. And um, he's a visionary. I mean, he's, he's a person that can understand the need for preserving a monument without felling trees, without removing mm -hmm. the canopy, without, um, you know, he quite literally is someone that wanted to build, rebuild and preserve following the way the Maya did things and not trying to impose an outsider technical vision on what he understood to be a fantastic model and, and a working model for construction, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so Rudy is someone that approaches the preservation of Maya architecture as someone that actually respects Maya architecture and mm -hmm. is not trying to substitute it. And so Jorge Khan learned from a very, very uh, wonderful person to, to do what he does. Mm -hmm. But I think Jorge, in, in his own way, he's also a very practical-minded person and he himself is not an architect. So I think his approach is, is perfect for what he's trying to do um, because one of the things that he's encountered at Chinantanich is what to do about finding material to continue preservation. I mean, where do you go find limestone to keep, you know, mm -hmm. rebuilding or, or reconstructing something? And so he's he's been working on experimental approaches to solve that problem. Um, Shinantanich happened to have limestone quarries right there. And mm -hmm. these are quarries that were used in antiquity, I mean, ancient times, but they were also um, used for conservation. And um, in the process of cutting blocks and moving them, you know, Jorge realized that it's really time consuming. It's a lot of energy and effort that it requires for, for you know, for having men, you know, cutting limestone blocks all day. It's, it's a lot of work for very little result. Mm -hmm. And there's only so many people. Um, so he's already come up with a way to try to recycle other limestone products if you want to think of them like that like mm -hmm. even the, the even like rotted limestone that is degraded that becomes very powdery you can actually reuse that in a mm. mix it with you know into mortar you can add a low percentage of white concrete which is what they've been using and actually provide a lot more um, structural integrity um, and he's been making his own blocks which is pretty amazing yeah. I mean it's an experiment but it, it it teaches me that, you know, this is someone that's extremely, you know, inventive, creative and resourceful and also someone that's been doing this for a really long time. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's there's always room for experimentation when you've already been doing something for for a long chunk of your life, I think. Right. And so it it's the whole time. I mean, it was just pretty joyful being around him. And and I, I knew how special I you know it was for me to be able to just talk to him and record him and take pictures when I wanted to I mean it was the whole thing was pretty um, remarkable yeah I mean talk about an inside look at the way that this all works right mm -hmm. Absolutely. so I I would love to hear about some of the some of the conclusions or, or the insights that you had as a result of this project so COVID sort of threw a big cog into everything for me mm -hmm. Yep, <laughs> because I had just completed the round of interviews, the oral histories that I had collected with them, with some of the men that had been working at Chinantanich um, in July of 2019. And so I honestly had no idea what was coming. And in my mind, there was not going to be any issue for me to go back to Belize the following summer. Um, that winter, instead of going to Belize, which would have been a perfectly fine decision since I had done that previous winters, mm -hmm. uh, we I went to Mexico with my partner instead, and we visited some sites in Mexico. So I didn't go back to Belize before the outbreak of the COVID pandemic. And so by March, when everything, sort of took a very different turn 
um, we pretty much knew that the country was going to take a really strict uh, measures. You know, mm -hmm. it took very strict measures because Belize is not a country that is very well prepared in terms of either private or public medical resources for mm -hmm. locals. It's a small country, but it's also a small country where it's a very, a very small population, you know, relative to, you know, Mexico or, you know, mm -hmm. Guatemala. And um, in fact, like the typical arrangement when you go into the field is that if something happens to you, they're going to they're going to take you out of their you know, helicopter and they're going to take you to Mexico. That's basically mm -hmm. what insurance does. Yeah. So I, I had a feeling and that feeling, unfortunately, became very much uh, more than a feeling because the country was completely shut down. And and I don't want to sound too critical, but I mean, things were a little draconian there for a while. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and I understood, you know, there was really, you know, there's really no way that we were going to crack that nut. Um, I already had my permit to go back and keep working. Like I actually had my project approved and mm -hmm. they were so gracious. You know, they said, listen, we know that you were not uh, going to be able to come back this year, but we're willing to extend you the, your permit for another year. And so that you can try to come back by 2001, uh, 2021. Um, but things were not that much better by 2021 <laughs> in Belize. It right. was and they were not that great here either, um, but they, but Belize in particular was just hit really hard. In fact, um, I've been looking through some of the reports on exactly how hard things got um, that have been coming out more recently, you know, in the past mm -hmm. few days and, you know, the contraction on, you know, it, it, the economy, it was just horrid, it was, you know, yeah. tourism was completely, you know, just stopped on yeah. its tracks right at a moment when the country was really investing a lot of resources in rebranding itself to to kind of expand um, tourism as one of the most successful of its um, sectors in the economy. So everything really kind of crashed. And in a place like Belize, and this isn't that different um, from places like Mexico, as I come to realize there's the linkage between funding for archaeology and tourism is very very intimate mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> it's, it's very close uncomfortably so I think yeah and um in Belize for example you know it's it's it one really does feed the other it really is tourism that feeds archaeology so and and or foreign investment from you know funding that's being brought from archaeologists you know NSF mm -hmm. funding sort of thing um and so I knew you know I not only that but Jorge and I stayed in touch and he was just like this there's no point you know this is not working mm -hmm. so I gave up on it I, I it was a really difficult moment but I made the decision to not go back and uh what that meant was that I had the data that I had from the field and nothing else and what that forced me to do was to look at visual resources and data that I had a lot more closely and that brought me into the archive mm -hmm. um, and so unfortunately you know in many ways the project became a different project I'm not saying it's better or worse I'm simply saying it it, it was it ended up being different because right. I ended up spending a lot more time looking at historical sources and I made some really interesting discoveries along the way that I'm hoping to report on in a way that honors them because mm -hmm. I found the first, what I believe to be the first instances of conservation at Chinantinich going back to the 50s and involving pretty major figures in my archaeology like um, Eric Thompson, like Sir, you know, Sir mm -hmm. Eric Thompson and Tatiana Porskoryakov in correspondence with um, archaeologists, uh, an archaeologist that was a curator who went to Belize to work at Chinantunich. And so his name was Linton Satterthwaite, and he was mm -hmm. the curator of the American section at the Penn Museum. Well, well now the Penn Museum, back then the University of Pennsylvania Museum. Mm -hmm. And um, all of a sudden, I'm spending a lot more time writing about early conservation. Um, that has not been part of the record. 
you know, trying to think about uh, this indigenous curation, I'm trying to see how far back it goes because it just so happened that these early conservation efforts were actually carried out by Maya men from the village. Mm-hmm. And not only were they Maya men from the village, but one of the men is the great grandfather of Jorge Khan. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that was, none of us knew this. All of a sudden, I'm finding references to someone named Santiago Khan in the record in field notes and field journals. And I'm looking at photographs and I'm looking at a photograph of his wife wow. and I'm looking at her and I'm thinking this woman looks just like Tilico and mm-hmm. or Jorge Khan's nickname is Tilico. Mm-hmm. And so I send Jorge a picture of her and I'm like, Tilico, I think this may be one of your ancestors. And he looked at her and he said, I think this is my great grandma. Wow. Um, turned out that the curator slash archaeologist at Penn, um, Linton Satterthwaite, ended up becoming compadre with Santiago Khan. Hmm. And so none, you know, this none of this has ever been made part of the record, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there was another indigenous um, person working with them. His name was Jacinto Cunil. And Jacinto is part of the record. Jacinto was recommended by Thompson and Thompson wrote about Jacinto in a few of his books, extolling his virtues and you know saying nothing but wonderful things about this Maya man that became his right hand in the field. Right, and they were trained by people like Thompson. You know, these mm-hmm. are these were not just you know these are important contributors to the history of archaeology at these sites. Absolutely. Um, I just, the more I think about it, the more I realize that it's just, it's, these are some of the most fabulous stories that could ever be, you know, located and made public about, about this kind of work, because Mm -hmm. in a way it, it makes it so real that my archaeology is a lot more than just foreign archaeologists doing the work, Right. It's, it really is a lot about the people on the ground that are, you know, in many cases, Maya doing the work. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah. It's really fair. And, and I, this is one of the things that I, that I really love about your project. And I know we spoke about this a little bit before the interview, but um, I just love the way that this project brings to the forefront the the masterminds who are behind all of the things that we see as we visit these sites, but whose names even if they're mentioned in, in some of these, you know, these more preliminary reports, they're not generally as well known to the public as the names of the foreign archaeologists who run the sites. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I'm, I know that it's very possible for some archaeologists to perhaps, mis, you know, perhaps misinterpret my, my interest in trying to, you know, make this more you know I don't want to say that it's just a critique yeah there's a critical aspect of what I'm trying to do but mm-hmm. I, I also again you know if Thompson was writing about his you know collaborator on the field Jacinto Gunil and publishing this in his books um, even if on some level sure he was romanticizing you know Jacinto because he was such a spiritual person and you mm-hmm. know etc you know even if if someone as big in the field as Thompson saw value, you know, and saw the importance of what this man meant in mm-hmm. his own work, you know, enough for him to write about him, not in just one, but in a couple of his books, I know that um, it's not such a far-fetched idea to think that, you know, these are stories that are worth telling. And not only that, um, the irony is that because of having to procure IRB clearance from my university, for example, mm-hmm. I cannot really go out and about and just, you know, it would be a betrayal of confidence to make a bunch of the things that I heard public, whether they're good or bad, it doesn't matter. It's because right. of the anonymity protection, you know, mm-hmm. with someone like Jorge, because he's a quote-unquote public figure, he is the leading conservator at the Institute of Archaeology in Belize. 
it's much easier for me to up to talk about him, you know, mm-hmm. and it's much right. easier for me to refer to, to our interview, you know, cons- conversations and interviewing process and this and that, you know, and to our, about our friendship, you know, I, I feel a lot more comfortable talking about it. Um, but um, I, I have to be very careful about how I deal with the other data that pertains to conversations that I had with with the men that I wish I could make public you yeah know? <laughs> mm-hmm. so so there's that too there's this wall that I have to respect for their sake for my sake for the sake of the scholarship mm-hmm. and for the integrity of the project so it, it's a little bit of a catch-22 in that sense because right. sure I wish I could name them and and make everything that they said to me public but it that that comes that that's a double-edged sword right there you know right yeah we've got to remember privacy and well it's not just that it's just that it's 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 uh let's be real here um these are men that uh, you were asking about training earlier for example so in many cases they are they've learned masonry techniques you know Mm -hmm. working uh, in in the real world you know not just in archaeological um, contexts but the problem is that they become genuinely interested in this work and it this is contingent work this is not work Mm. that can feed them all year long right this is work that is seasonal and it's work that as you said in, in brings other different kinds of training you know mm-hmm. and so for example one of the people that I interviewed and and his story really kind of stuck to you know stuck to me like to, you know it, it hit me hard mm-hmm. because um you know he received this incredible training to be able to preserve and work on this you know stucco carvings that I write about and you know he said listen this is something that I was trained in but I was never able to pass this on to anybody else Mm. and once this project ended I you know because they saw promise in me but they weren't able to 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 offer me much more you know he ended up being a ranger um that basically watches the border between Guatemala and Belize Mm. (laughs) You know, st- like standing, and I went to interview him there, you know, and, and I interviewed him under this very small corrugated metal roof. Uh-huh. And as, as it happens all the time in the region, <laughs> um, we got pummeled with the, it felt like the sky had broken and the, the, the deluge, I mean, it was so hard that we could barely hear each other. That's how how hard the rain was hitting this tiny little metal roof, and we had the best time. I mean, it was the restraint. The the rain was so strong that we were basically drenched by the end of the interview, but we stuck with it. And months after the fact, I sat uh, in the office of probably one of the world's top two or three experts on limestone. And wow. he said, you know what, but, you know, I told him the story because I said, listen, so I, I learned, I heard about, you know, this individual that learned this whole technique of mixing the mortar, you know, mixing the plaster of modeling it and this and that. And then it didn't really amount to much. And he said, well, you know, what they ended up doing, which is they ended up creating a copy with fiberglass. It's a very clever mm-hmm. solution, you know, for conservation. And it's it's done in other parts of the Maya region, not just at Shunantanich. But he said, but remember, Annabelle, fiberglass is going to fail. Uh, 25 mm-hmm. years, 30 max, mm-hmm. it's going to start falling apart. If they had decided to train and continue working with that technique of stucco, like the Maya in the Maya style, they could have probably continued to preserve that as that part of the monument over time, just like the Maya did. And that could have even spawned a small cottage craft industry around plaster modeling. Right. So that would have been a sustainable solution, you know, mm-hmm. instead of a loss of knowledge or just a, you know, sort of frozen, you know, in limbo, you know, this is knowledge that this person picked up that is just sitting there untapped. Um, so some of the training is really specialized. 
another individual um, who taught me one of the people that I worked with who taught me to do to do mapping you know mm-hmm. um, trained to do mapping ended up getting a job in a gas station and we couldn't leave the job in the gas station because it wasn't the kind of job where he could just say you know what I'm gonna work in this archaeological dig for a couple of months I'll be back right mm-hmm. so so the contingency you know the 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 it's I'm I'm not saying I have solutions, you know, my project doesn't necessarily provide solutions to these quandaries, but these are some of the kind of, you know, touching things that I listened to that I was just, or that I observed, Mm -hmm. you know, or that I I had happened around me, you know, that summer that this person with the training for mapping couldn't work, they had to bring somebody from Guatemala to do the mapping. Oh, wow. Because again, it's very specialized knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and it requires a, a significant degree of talent to do it mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it's, it's one of the, I think one of the hardest parts of archaeology, right, is that it is seasonal, um, yes. especially in these areas, right? Of course, yeah. Yeah. So as we kind of wrap up and and look at this in in a a broad perspective i'd love to ask you um a question that seems simple but but many people have told me is actually one of the hardest questions is what do you love the most about this project and what you what you were able to accomplish during it oof that's a heavy one um i mean i'll be frank the the I used the term bittersweet before the interview because of having to give up on a bunch of things I wanted to do in order Mm -hmm. to get back to the field. Um, But I also know that, you know, I absolutely loved, loved being able to find, I I mean, I'm going to tell you a, a simple, this is probably what I've loved the most. Just when I thought nothing else was going to pop up in the archive, this is the, the, you know, I was mm-hmm. thinking that I was going back there just to review certain things. I ended up looking at another folder and I found a hand-drawn sketch by Linton Satterswaite that had been annotated by him, mailed to Thompson and Thompson then annotated it on top and added references to look at this particular monument in Copan, find this one in Huachatun. Like mm-hmm. the most amazing back and forth conversation in terms of iconographic decipherment mm-hmm. taking place through snail mail <laughs> between like these two fabulous thinkers about this, you know, topic. Mm-hmm. And then oh, you know what, we should send it to Tatiana. And then they send it to Tatiana and they're trying to entice her to see if she'll provide some kind of interpretation too. So this was <laughs> something that was circulated between them and the, the collegiality of their correspondence. They could, you could just tell these were people that absolutely loved each other yeah. and respected each other. And just seeing that, you know, that was something that I absolutely loved. I mean, it was just... I felt like I was standing on the shoulders of giants all the mm-hmm. time. That's another thing that I absolutely loved about this project. Right. From the invitation that I received from Jaime Awe, who is a Belizean archaeologist, who is probably the, you know, has, I mean, not probably, Jaime has done more for Belizean archaeology than basically anybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, he was director of the Institute of Archaeology for a decade and a half almost. And he's been running this field school for the longest time. So from that invitation to even things that did not make sense to me or that may have rubbed me the wrong way about how archaeology works on the ground, it there were still such great lessons that I learned, you know, about how to relate to people, how to relate to, you know, how to mediate between people because of the uh, uh, perhaps like a lack of cultural understanding between them you know right there was there was just so many lessons um so there's been a lot that I've, I've loved both in the field and in the archive and so even though yeah I feel like I gave up on something you know that I'll probably not get back you know because the mm-hmm. time was just not right for it 
I also think that I absolutely did the best that I could with what I had and and more because I just kept finding this just phenomenal you know if it wasn't drawings it was maps if it wasn't maps it was photographs I mean just letters journals so you know I, I really have enjoyed a lot of it along the way yeah and what a fantastic project too just even with the you know with the sudden pivot that you had to make alongside many other people I, I know um to, to a different topic in these uh pandemic times just I mean the twists and turns that, that your project has gone through just seem to make it so um so well-rounded I think is the word that I'm looking for just in the sense that you know you, you got to use archives you also got to talk to people on the ground um and it seems like you you've brought in a lot of different perspectives into this project yeah I I again I the IRB I'll be frank, adding that component of interviewing people probably added easily another year of preparation plus field work mm -hmm. on top of it. Uh, so that means that I added, you know, to my timeline, but I just, I couldn't not do that. It just, it would have right. been irresponsible. You mm -hmm. know? <laughs> it really <Yep>. would <laughs> And I, again, you know, even though that work is probably going to take up only one chapter in a dissertation, I have the feeling that that's going to be the the component that may lead to a, a, maybe an article, you know, or something mm -hmm. down the line. Um, because I've also found other people that are doing that are interested in these questions and that I have been looking for ways to kind of address them in their own research. Yeah. So I think there's there's some value here that needs to keep uh, perhaps be uh, articulated differently or or in a different kind of forum. You know, since mm -hmm. dissertations are not exactly what everybody's reading these days. Right. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> so true. <laughs> uh, well. As we wrap up, is there anything else that you'd like to share about this project that we haven't been able to talk about yet? Mm, I mean, I, 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 I tend to ramble, but I also hope that I stayed on topic as much as Yeah, possible. absolutely. No, it's been so great. <laughs> uh, you know, you asked about insight and I think, I think the most important insight and something that I wish anyone going into archaeology in the Maya region considers seriously is if you're going to be working with people from the place that you're going to be at like you know if you're if you have the luck of ending up in any situation where if you know if you're in Honduras you work with Hondureños or if you're in Mexico mm -hmm. you work with Mexicanos you know those are the people that I probably will have the most to teach you mm -hmm. um, but in order to to gain that incredibly valuable lesson or lessons, you have to be receptive, you know, open and willing to listen to people that, you know, may not have the degrees of your professors, but who cares? Mm -hmm. Like these are the people, that, these are the people that probably have the most to teach. And, yeah. uh, and just because you don't have a degree doesn't mean that you may not be a master archaeologist. I mean, some of the people that we worked with have been doing this for 25, 30 years. Mm -hmm. You know, that's 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 a, a multiple PhDs right there, if you ask me. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and that's su yeah, such an important insight. So this, that's yeah, that's yeah. something that, uh, you know, as an educator myself, you know, that's where the real lesson lies, you know. The stuff that you can read in the books, of course, that's important too, but that's not the only lesson, you know, right. or, or the lesson, you know, or the, you know, the brain power that your, you know, that your professors have in the ground. Of course, that's incredibly important too, mm -hmm. but you know, this other stuff is just as valuable. So I think that's important. That's something I, I got out of my project and I wish I could communicate that to, to your audience and to, mm -hmm. again, to, you know, archaeologists in the making and even those that have been doing it for a long time. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I, I mean, once again, just thank you for taking the time to, to talk about this project. I, I absolutely love the insights that you've shared, the experiences that you have. Um, and I hope to have you back sometime in the future to talk about what's up next for you. That would be wonderful. I'd love to talk to you again. And I would love to keep learning about your work. I'm excited for you. And thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much. 
To learn more about Anavela's work and to read a brief synopsis of her dissertation, please check out the webpage for this episode at MesoamericanStudiesOnline.com. Thank you all so much for being part of this community, and thank you to Annabelle for sharing your work with us, and we'll see you in the next episode. <laughs>